Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. A podcast about the latest products and services, technologies and people pushing forward a new frontier. Bi-monthly Lee S. Dreiber hosts a pioneer for an in-depth discussion. And now over to the show. Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of the Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. On today's show, we have Tom Stubbs. Tom obtained a first-class honours degree in molecular and cellular biochemistry from the University of Oxford. Subsequently, Tom undertook a PhD at the University of Cambridge, co-supervised by Professor Wolfreich and Professor Shanka Balasubra Manian. Tom's PhD was broadly on development and implementation of novel wet lab and computational methods aimed at improving our understanding of epigenetics, specifically DNA methylation. This research resulted in Tom authoring a number of high-impact publications and two patent filings. Tom has since founded Chronomics, an epigenetics testing AI platform to to drive the future of personalized wellness. Along with his team at Chronomics, Tom is at the forefront of bringing proactive, personalized and consumer-centric health management to life. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Lee. Uh, Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, Pleasure to be here and... uh looking forward to, to chatting with you. What's the focus of Chronomics? We are very much focused on measuring health so people can avoid disease. Measuring health so that people can avoid disease, that sounds a little bit cryptic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, essentially, we're, we're focused on providing people with objective measures that capture the broader definition of health. So not merely health being the absence of disease, but actually as defined by the World Health Organization over 70 years ago, health being the complete physical and mental and social well-being of a person. And we think that this is is super important because with the rise of aging populations and the growth in chronic conditions globally, such as heart disease and type 2 diabetes, there's there's a growing need for, for healthcare to shift towards prevention. And to enable this shift, we need measures to capture the largest risk factors for these conditions ahead of time so that people can prevent uh, through action. So I think I was one of the first users of Chronomics. I'd contacted yourselves at the end of 2008 and took a whole genome sequence and an epigenetic test. Uh, yes, we, we first um, were putting, putting the product out uh, 2018. And yes, you were, were among one of the first the first users of the product. Um, so, yeah, pleasure pleasure to have had you and still have you as a customer, Lee. And I remember uh, yourselves very favorably because I was a little bit skeptical because Tommy Woods had informed me that the business model of quite a few companies in the omics space is to give you a large questionnaire, apply AI to it, and... I, I've had it demonstrated now to me that based on a simple questionnaire, AI can derive a lot of information about you on the health front, predictive, way more than the omics can in some cases. And these companies are doing this heavy omics acqui- data acquisition, not so much to give you data at the moment, I, I mean information, but in order that maybe in five, 10 years, that vast sum of data, they can then do something with. And so I was skeptical at Chronomics maybe doing that. And I said, please make a special case for me. Give me my results 
without the the questionnaire do you remember that yeah i i do remember this lee i do remember (laughs) (laughs) an easy customer and then i said hey look i actually if i'm doing a whole genome sequence i actually want a copy of it so send me every letter Uh, yeah (laughs) uh, and you said okay it's your data we can ship your hard disk if if you want so do you also remember that part yeah yeah absolutely i mean the the data um, that we are generating on behalf of our customers under um, European law and you know by the values of the company is is your data. So absolutely, we make that available for for all of our customers. So I greatly appreciate it. I think it was like a seven gig. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a fairly fairly large file um, to get all all six billion letters at two copies of three billion at thirty x depth. Did it, it was a thirty pass. I, I never knew that because I don't think the site ever said how many passes were getting taken. Yeah, on the on the whole genome and on the uh, epigenetic side, both are, are 30x 30x minimum passes. We use uh, next generation sequencing, uh, so we're not using chips in the sense that we don't do uh, genotyping. So using technology that you'd see from uh, some most genetics providers, like. Uh, Ancestry, 23andMe, et cetera, where they're looking at a a small fraction of your whole genome. We actually look at the whole genome and we look at it using next generation sequencing technology. And similarly, on the epigenetic side, we're distinct in that we also use next generation sequencing there. So we don't use chips or epigenetic arrays either. Uh, The reason being, it gives us access to vast vast amounts more uh, uh, from a data perspective, but also it comes with uh, added benefits around uh, accuracy and additional components of the the data that you can uh, understand and and use during analysis. Chronomics, I understand, is the first company to offer epigenetic testing. There have been a number of epigenetics companies. Uh, so epigenetics as a field has been around for a really long time, and there have been a number of companies that have been really focused on using epigenetics from uh, from tissue samples taken from, for instance, cancer patients to to align specific uh, treatments. So, for instance, looking at, at breast cancer, things like that. Um, to my knowledge, we are the first epigenetics company that's using saliva as a, a sampling type to provide people with preventive health measures. And why why is epigenetics good for preventative health measures? So epigenetics is is really fantastic as a data type for preventive health because of the very nature of what epigenetics is. So epigenetics is really the science of how how your DNA is controlled. So in in any one of your cells, there's there's tons of this DNA um, that if stretched out would be kind of two meters long that has to get wrapped, packaged, uh, and controlled very very precisely uh, to enable your cells to function, and that process of controlling packaging and making different bits accessible is managed over over long periods of time using uh, using epigenetic uh, information and and so epigenetics is really a, a fundamental uh, fundamental component of biology and it's super useful in a prevention context because it it changes in line with health and also over over long periods of time so it isn't it isn't something that uh, necessarily just spikes and, and tracks acutely, although in, in certain contexts it does, it also captures long-term risk. Uh, and for things like age-related and chronic conditions that, that happen over, over years, if not decades, having a, a data type that can track with the, the changing health 
and evolution of health over such long periods of time is is super useful. Um, and that's something that really epigenetics is acutely placed to to support within a prevention context. Can you differentiate that with genomics? Because I think more people have have heard of genomics and genomic testing, yeah. and te- and many people test their genomics for health reasons. So genomics or or your genetic information is the information that you're you're born with that you get from your mother and father and provides you with a whole host of information about your your risk from birth of succumbing to certain diseases. And it's super useful if you have a rare disease and you want to understand what could be what could be causing you to have that condition and potentially uh, therapeutic options to uh, to move forward in um, improving your health or reducing the the burden of the symptoms. Uh, so such projects that have kind of been looking at that and using genomics in that way uh, include the the hundred thousand genome project conducted in the UK. Uh, genomics also has other um, utilities in uh, providing people with uh, information about their um, their personalized pharmaco profiles. Uh, so that's uh, an area of genomics known as pharmacogenomics that provides people with information about um, the likelihood of uh, certain compounds in their bodies um, enabling actually working or not uh, and potentially as we move further forward that that will get more granular into into dosages etc of where epigenetics really comes in and is to my mind way more useful than than genomics is around the age-related and chronic conditions that all of us suffer from so these are things like type 2 diabetes uh, heart disease conditions where the majority of the risk is not um, from from that genetic layer from birth, but is actually um, how that genetic information is interacting and, and affecting uh, and engaging, I guess, if you like, with, uh, with environment and lifestyle components of risk. So if we take heart disease, for instance, uh, heart disease is something that genetically you can be predisposed to having uh, a higher risk of from birth um, due to your genetic information. And that risk could be as high as kind of fourfold more than, than somebody else. But when you take when you take age, you take different components of environment and lifestyle into account, that risk profile actually kind of from, from lowest risk to highest risk is actually 5,000 fold. So a far greater body of risk is explained um, by those ex- external factors to, to the underlying genetics. That Those components of risk, um, the actionable components of risk that you can do something about are the components that are explained by epigenetics and that at Chronomics, we're, we're really focused on providing people with access to way ahead of disease onset so that people can take action to, to massively reduce their risk independent of what their genetic baseline is. So are you saying genomics is largely a waste of time for the majority of people? Uh, <laughs> the genomics and epigenetics um, provide complementary forms of data and they have different utilities. But when it comes to prevention of age-related and chronic conditions, there's there's an incredible amount of information that you can get at using this epigenetic data type and paradigm that is completely masked from uh, from somebody's genetic layer. It definitely definitely seems to me that genomic testing is not as useful as epigenetic testing is, or at least what epigenetic testing will become. Because I know for myself, from 
genetic testing, it didn't really help me in any fashion. I did notice um, I was homozygous for MTHFR. And I think that's how most people have heard of the word methylation. Could you introduce what methylation is in the context of epigenetics? Happy to. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, just going back to the genetics thing, I think, you know, genetics provides you with with information, but it's nothing you can actually change or, or do anything about in the majority of cases. And and to me, that is the big distinction with epigenetics, where you can find out about it, take action, remeasure, and see the change. Uh, something that's, yeah, really not possible in a, in a genetic context at all. In the case of uh, methylation, and I, I know a lot of a lot of people will be familiar now with with MTHFR as a as a gene and as a as a, a broader concept that's that's discussed a lot. In the case of epigenetics, methylation is is an integral phenomena within epigenetics. So uh, when people talk about methylation, they're talking about a, a methyl group, and this methyl group can be added to to proteins uh, such as histone proteins, which are kind of ball like. Um, protein structures that the DNA wraps around in cells, but also the DNA itself can be methylated. And this is a, a phenomenon known as DNA methylation, uh, unsurprisingly. And DNA methylation is actually at chronomics, the, the mark that we measure. So we measure DNA methylation at uh, millions of positions, tens of millions of positions across the, uh, the whole of your genome to provide um, and derive these specific signatures for different components of environment and lifestyle risk, many of the largest risk factors for age and chronic conditions. And yeah, methylation is is used in a variety of ways by your cells. So uh, the the dogma, if you like, is that where methylation is is present on DNA, it suppresses gene expression, and where it's absent, genes get expressed. It's interesting you say it's dogma. I don't mean to cut you off. I thought that was sort of the general yeah, consensus. Yeah. This is a phenomenon that's that's true, but it's it's true for for methylation patterns in specific regions of the genome. Uh, and actually, when you look at how methylation is used more broadly, methylation being present, for instance, in gene bodies may actually be a function of genes being expressed. Um, so it's it's context dependent. And as with all things in biology, it's often more complicated than than at first meets the eye. Okay. And so histone methylation versus DNA methylation? So histones, um, these these proteins that your your DNA wraps around can have a whole host of different epigenetic modification added to them. Methylation is is one component of that. And depending on the type of methylation, uh, because methylation can be added to to different amino acids or different building blocks of those histone proteins, that methylation will do different things as well. Um, and it's it's also really important to bear in mind that these different epigenetic processes are all uh, interrelated. Uh, so there have been a number of of studies actually looking at uh, the ability to predict for instance, what certain components of histomethylation will look like from DNA methylation and vice versa. But, but at a really fundamental level, these things are absolutely required for complex life. So in the case of DNA methylation, there have been a, a whole host of studies where people have taken uh, embryonic stem cells, so cells that can become all cells within, uh, within the body. What they found is that if you 
remove the ability to, to methylate, those cells can never differentiate. So those cells can never become skin cells or liver cells or, um, or blood cells or any other type of cell without that um, DNA methylation uh, profiling. So really showing how, how fundamental a part of biology epigenetics is and how absolutely required it is for, for the proper functioning of us as, uh, as a species and as, um, as organisms. I appreciate that. And could you kindly introduce what CPG sites are or islands and dinucleotides? So CPG dinucleotide is uh, a fancy way of talking about uh, two specific consecutive letters in the genome. So in our DNA, we have uh, four base letters, if you like. We have a, an A, a C, a G, and a T. Um, and when we talk about DNA methylation in mammals, this methylation is pretty much specifically added in the majority of cases specifically added to a c letter so a cytosine when it's always followed by a guanine so a g uh, so when a c is followed by a g that c has the propensity to get methylated by the enzymes the proteins in your cells uh, that are known as dna methyltransferases that add this modification and for, for those who don't know, DNA itself has a directionality. So CG is not the same as GC. Um, so when we say CPG, it means that along the backbone, it has to flow in that order. So GPC would be unlikely to be methylated, whereas CPG is, is very likely to be methylated. So that's, that's what CPG dinucleotides are, a fancy way of just referring to a C when it's followed by a G in the genome. And when we talk about CPG islands, and we also have shores, shelves, seas, oceans, <laughs> um, that that analogy. Um, I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that analogy in biology probably gets extended uh, further than it actually should. But CPG islands are basically um, regions of the the genome where there's a, a really high density of Cs followed by Gs. So these CPG islands can, can, for instance, be found in what we call gene promoters. So regions just upstream of genes um, that control how and when a, a gene is expressed. Uh, but they can also be found in, in different parts of the, the genome as well. And CPG islands are a well-studied and understood phenomena because they're involved um, in, a, in a whole host of different uh, processes through the body um, and are also implicated um, quite heavily in in the onset of certain types of cancer as well. So that's why they're, they're very well known. And CPG islands are basically the highest density regions of your DNA um, in terms of CPGs or CG dinucleotides. The regions neighboring CPG islands uh, are known as shores and shelves. And then as you move into lower, dense, lower density CG regions of the genome, you start to get into to regions known as seas and oceans, which is where that terminology is coming from. Thank you very much for that. And, in, and also CPG dense promoters and this talk of uh, also talk of hypermethylation and hypomethylation. Yeah, CPG dense promoters uh, would be what are termed CPG island promoters. Um, and these are, um, these are often uh, heavily involved in um, differentiation. So 
you know, if you wanted to distinguish one cell type from another cell type, you you can look specifically at these regions. If you wanted to know the difference, you know, that you're looking at a liver cell instead of a, a lung cell, let's say. Um, and as I mentioned, these things are also heavily involved in, in cancer phenotypes. When people talk about hypermethylation or hypomethylation, something that's getting hypermethylated means that that position, when you look across a whole bunch of cells as a population of cells, is getting more methylated. And conversely, hypomethylation means uh, something that's getting less methylated. This, this is an important concept because it's, it's distinct from genetics. So in genetics, as we mentioned, all of your cells or pretty much all of your cells share the exact same genetic material. Um, so if you have a, a C followed by a G at one position in your DNA, that's likely to be across all of the cells in your body true. Uh, whereas in the case of methylation, uh, what you find is that there's a, there's a probability of a given cell having methylation at a given position. So let's say you've got uh, one copy of your DNA in one cell that's methylated. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the other um, 100,000 cells you'd look at in a, in a small subset of cells would also be methylated. Uh, and actually what we, what we see when we look in the human genome is that there tends to be a bimodal distribution. So there tends to be positions in the genome that are heavily methylated, so around 80% methylated. So that means 80% of cells will have that methyl group at that position, um, and 20% of them won't. And then conversely, you'll have regions that are really are lowly methylated. Um, so this could be anywhere from kind of 0 to, to 10 or 20% or methylated. So very, very lowly methylated where, where the converse is true. And yeah, and typically when people look at uh, CPG island promoters, um, which is where this whole, um, if methylation is present, then there's no expression. And if methylation is absent, there is expression comes from. It comes specifically from CPG island promoters. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Uh, in the first context. And what about this link between hypermethylation um, and promoters and like oncogene suppression or, or silencing? Yeah, so there's a, a relatively well-studied uh, phenomena um, when it comes to cancer and CPG island promoters known as SIMP, uh, C-I-M-P. Uh, and this is basically stands for uh, unimaginatively CPG island methylated phenotype. And basically, this is uh, something that seems to happen in, in a number of different cancers where uh, certain CPG islands that... Uh, are unmethylated become um, become methylated, uh, and that can have adverse outcomes for those cells. And um, the hypothesis being that can alter cells' propensities to to become uh, to become cancerous. You're getting me more excited <laughs> about epigenetics. So it seems that chronomics is taking epigenetic code, making it digital code. What is unique about chronomics? How, how did this come about? Yeah, I mean, epigenetics, as we've said, is a, is a fantastic data type. And this is a, this is a huge growing area. And there's, there's clearly a massive need for prevention and uh, reducing the disease burden of age-related and chronic conditions that uh, in the UK, but also in, in the US and further afield, is having a, a massive detrimental impact on, uh, on healthcare budgets and, and spend. Um, 
In terms of what makes Chronomic unique, so we touched on it at the start around the, the data type that we use. Uh, so we focus in on uh, next generation sequencing, not arrays, and we're using saliva uh, rather than other tissue types that are perhaps uh, more invasive to get, get hold of. Um, but what really sets Chronomics apart is that we have derived, we've derived a health biomarker engine utilizing uh, the knowledge and experience of our of our incredible team of of scientists and uh, and engineers that have worked at the forefront of the field um, at the University of Cambridge, the European Bioinformatics Institute, and other leading um, leading institutions in the space uh, to really take this science of epigenetics and these biomarkers that we can derive from this data and provide it to people. So, if you look at um, some of the other epigenetics companies that are operating in the space, most of them will be uh, utilizing uh, biomarkers for biological age. Uh, we've we've already taken that 10 steps further by introducing additional biomarkers for other components of health or for components of health that uh, also feed into to the aging phenomena. Um, so these include biomarkers uh, looking at metabolic health uh, and also exposures that can be detected almost two to five years later using epigenetic uh, signatures for things such as smoke exposures uh, and alcohol consumption. Hey Tom, just so I can be sure that listeners follow, you mentioned earlier arrays. Uh, can you differentiate that, uh, that method from sequencing? Um, so this is just more um, in terms of the, the ways you can capture epigenetic information. It, similarly to with genetic information, you can either capture it from a genotyping array um, that looks at a small fraction of the genome or epigenome, uh, or you can use sequencing. And sequencing is where you're basically reading out um, all of the letters within the genome or the epigenome, uh, and you map that then to, to a genome and you get to understand, okay, what variants does somebody have across their genome or what what is the methylation state given this sample across different uh, CG sites in the genome? Uh, and the, the beautiful thing about, uh, about sequencing data on the epigenetic side is that it provides you with a whole host of other um, other measures that you just you can't really get access to with, with epigenetic arrays. Um, so one is looking at uh, your, your two alleles separately. Uh, so with epigenetic array technology, you don't know uh, which which copy uh, you're looking at in terms of uh, whether one comes from uh, your mother or your father, or to even distinguish um, the two in the first instance. You also are unable to uh, to know and to remove any underlying contamination from the sample, uh, which is a massive issue in the in the array space. Um, and you also don't get access to um, positions surrounding any given epigenetic position you're looking at. So you mentioned uh, CG sites to a given CG site also has an influence on the methylation state at that site. Uh, and you lose this, this sort of information if you're looking at uh, array data. So that really provides us with, with an edge on the technology side. And then, you know, within Chronomics, we, we have many of the, the world leaders in this space, um, both kind of from a scientific advisory board perspective, but also actually in the company doing the stuff to, to ensure that we stay at the cutting edge of this technology um, and are delivering the advances that are so badly needed uh, in the prevention space. Were you suggesting there, just to clarify, 
the if I go to other companies, I don't know, pick my DNA age and order their biological age testing service, which is, you know, epigenetic based, they're using arrays, not next gen sequencing. Or did I misunderstand? So in the case of um yeah, I guess <laughs> in the case of my DNA age, um, not to get uh, bogged down in in what competitors are doing, but in the case of my DNA age, they're looking at a very small fraction of your epigenome, uh, looking at a couple of hundred to a couple of thousand uh, sites in the genome to provide you with that one measure of biological age. In the case of chronomics, we're looking at pretty much your whole epigenome, and we're providing you with not just the, the most accurate measure of biological age available from epigenetics, but also a whole host of other uh, epigenetic biomarkers as well. And why do you seem to stress saliva? Like you, I think you've said that a few times now. Has it got something, some other property than blood? So saliva is a, a really uh, fantastic sampling uh, tissue type for a number of reasons. Uh, there's obviously some... Uh, some practical reasons around uh, the ability to for people to take this in the comfort of their own home without having to uh, to bleed themselves over a kitchen table, uh, which for those who've tried is not not a pleasant experience. But it also provides it also provides people with with access to biomarkers that are not available in blood. So there's been a number of uh, a number of studies looking at the the correlation between uh, for instance the brain methylome uh, and the saliva methylome versus the the blood methylome um, and in fact the saliva methylome is much better uh, correlated to to a brain methylome and so there's also the the likelihood that additional biomarkers that were previously inconceivable from from blood or had never been achieved before are now possible using using this data type and that's something that you know we're we're really passionate about uh, exploring and uh, and developing the the science around. And Lee, as we've spoken before, there are some some key advances that we're making in this space that are super super exciting that unfortunately we can't uh, we can't share today. But this is this is proving to be the case. Um, so so watch this. Yeah. Space. So what you allude to there is someone from Chronomics contacted me I think a few months ago and said, "Hey, we have a new feature." A new epigenetic, can I call it an epigenetic biomarker? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So I did actually have a question about that terminology, but I'll jump ahead. So he contacted me. It was a very pleasant call. He showed me a new feature. And yeah, I said, I, I'm, I can't mention what the feature is. He told me not to mention it. But I said, hey, I'll be top of the leaderboard for that marker. And I don't know if you are able to do any checking or you have any awareness, but he, I don't know how many others he had looked at. He said, yeah, you're at the top. So I wasn't that that surprised. And I think what you're saying there is that by having such a clean input based on saliva, based on next gen, you can develop these biomarkers. So I think what you're saying is possibly without saliva, and certainly not with using array technology, you couldn't develop these epigenetic biomarkers. Correct. So for, um, yeah, basically saying that a saliva as a sampling type provides you with the ability to derive biomarkers that, that you couldn't have got access to from another sampling source, potentially like blood. 
And by using our next generation sequencing approach, we have access to tens of millions of epigenetic sites in the genome that are completely missed by array technology. Uh, and actually, many of these sites are the most interesting in the genome when it comes to the epigenome. So just to give a bit of bit of history, historical context on that. So the, the first epigenetic arrays, going back to, to cancer and, and SIMPs and everything we were talking about earlier, um, were derived initially with a very uh, cancer, strong cancer focus. And, and so what those arrays focused on were regions of the genome from an epigenetic perspective that in the vast majority of cases are, are pretty static. They only become variable you know, in, in a disease context and in a, in a cancer context um, in the first iteration of the, the epigenetic array. Uh, more recent iterations have tried to broaden that panel out. Um, but when it comes to uh, looking, at, looking at the epigenome from a prevention context, lots of the subtle changes that are happening outside of CPG islands uh, and outside of regions that those arrays focus on. And so by using a, a much broader next generation sequencing approach, you get access to the, the highly variable and, and much more interesting regions of the genome from an epigenetic context that you can use to derive these biomarkers and that no one else has access to. Uh, and so that's what's super exciting from, from the economics perspective is that we can, we've essentially now got, you know, to use a ski analogy, dry powder to derive novel signatures for these things in a tissue type that's incredibly versatile to, to really support people with, with prevention and getting access to information about their health uh, years, if not decades before the onset of symptoms. Are there other companies using sequencing and saliva for epigenetic uh, biomarkers? So to our knowledge, uh, to our knowledge, no, that, that doesn't mean it may not be happening. It's just I'm not um, I'm not privy to it. Uh, to my knowledge, when when we look at um, many of the companies operating in the epigenetic space, uh, they're essentially taking taking biomarkers that are now um, getting on for kind of four or five years uh, old and just repurposing them uh, in a blood context uh, or other type of context to provide people with measures of biological age. To my knowledge, we're, we're the only company at the forefront of deriving novel biomarkers uh, using the, uh, the scientific expertise that we have internally within the company. And these... I'll call them epigenetic biomarkers. Are you publishing papers on these or is this all intellectual property uh, withheld or is it being put into the, the public domain? Absolutely. So as a, as a company, we, we want to advance the science of epigenetics and, and part of advancing that science is making um, our knowledge and, and understanding and um, available to, to the academic community to, to continue the um, the advances that are that are happening in the epigenetics field, uh, and we're we're doing this in a number of ways. One is uh, is in publication, and you know, and we're we're working on that uh, for a number of different things that we've been developing. Um, in addition to actually making the components of of what we've developed uh, accessible to to researchers as well. So so this is yeah something that we absolutely believe in um, and are developing. But I think it's it's really important to say that um, when we do any of this stuff, for us as a company, the the customer comes first, and the customer's data ownership comes first. And so anything that um, 
you you know we would ever consider or think about putting out um, and anyone that's involved in that would would have to have explicit opt-in consent so would you say um tom the chronomics is an epigenetic biomarker development company yeah i think that's that's one way you can you can think about uh about what is what is happening on the back end uh, i would sell what it on we the front are... end i find that quite exciting <laughs> yeah i mean that is that is what we what we do uh and we're using um this this technology and this development that we're we're doing on the epigenetic side to to power preventive solutions that our users and, and partners can can benefit from to to support people with improving health and the avoidance of disease. But but absolutely that's that's what we're doing. Yeah, so I find that the exciting part, and yet you called it back end. I mean I mean all the maybe I mix with a certain niche of people, but we're very excited at biomarkers and novel biomarkers. And now you're the first time I've heard it from you, you're developing these unique epigenetic um, signatures or, or biomarkers. What, what, I, what I feel from you, the sense I'm getting, because I, I, I don't think we've, uh, have we spoke before? Uh, I don't think so. No, you just seem vaguely familiar. But anyway, Jumping back in, I detect from you right that you are you are not such a believer in polygenetic risk scoring, as in you far more value this epigenetic side than even polygenetic risk scoring. Am I right there? I mean, I I think that the polygenic risk scores have have a place uh, and they they provide some value. I think there's some some clear issues with them to date. Uh, and these are known issues in the academic You are uh, so polite. Community. You are trained in politeness. I think I can detect from you the last thing you want to do is get out of bed and work on polygenetic risk scores relative to epigenetics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, epigenetics is is what excites me and and to my mind, is what's going to drive people in improving health and the avoidance of chronic conditions. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely, I'm I'm aligned that way. But I, I do think that genetic information has a value. I just think we've got to be we've got to be cautious around the use of polygenic risk scores because of issues around uh, differences across populations in uh, in polygenic risk scores. So to take take an example of some some data I saw uh, relatively recently was looking at um, the a polygenic risk score for for breast cancer, um, and this polygenic risk score worked incredibly well in uh, in the population that it was tested in. Um, and then when when these researchers uh, went on to to validate it in different uh, different populations or different sets of people uh, globally, they found that it was highly variable in terms of the the output of risk uh, for a given for a given population in a way that wasn't informative of breast cancer risk. So for instance, um, you know, they were finding that one population they tested in, everyone in the whole population, according to this polygenic risk score, would fall into uh, the high risk category um, and getting higher risk therefrom, which which wasn't meaningful. Um, so so there's clearly some some transformations and um 
and things that, that have to be thought about and normalizations when it comes to the use of polygenic risk scores that, that people are, are still working on. Uh, but I think polygenic risk scores versus the use of single uh, nucleotide polymorphisms um, have have a place when it comes to more complex phenotypes that can't be explained by single changes in somebody's in somebody's genome. Yeah, I would I would I would agree I would agree with that last point for sure. So I'm definitely feeling the energy from yourself on the epigenetic side, and I. I what I believe I'm picking up is the values in the epigenetic field. Chronomics is leading it for the reasons that you gave. You're developing these novel epigenetic biomarkers. It seems you don't have much competition going on there. So this is all going great on the back end. If we begin to move towards what what you would then call the front end, you guys give me a biological age score. I happen to believe it's the most accurate biological age score. Not, not because it made me seven <laughs> years younger. I, I don't think I, I honestly don't think I'm so biased. I, I don't I don't I'm not so attached to to such things. But I have a, a number of reasons I think it's the most accurate score, which I've not shared with yourself and I think I will do in due course, not in this podcast, but over time. I've been I've been I've been spending quite a bit of time in the area. So I have I think fairly a fairly good reason is to believe it's the most accurate. Now if I've I've just got a couple questions on that though. The Horvath clock, yeah. you know, the epigenetic clock, yeah. it was built for arrays, right? Correct, yeah. Did it get updated for next gen sequencing? Do you know? Um, so, so we've actually been um, working working with uh, with Steve on this, and what we've found, um, just going to to that clock, is that it it does work. It does work in a in a sequencing context, and it works in saliva. But there's an offset in saliva, uh, and I think that's just that's down to. Uh, the predominant tissue types that were involved in the in the derivation of that of that predictor. In in contrast with with Chronomics biological age measure, uh, it works pan um, pan platform as well. So it works in uh, from array technology and sequencing technology equivalently well. The the Horvath predictor is is as you as you mentioned has been solely derived using array platforms uh, and in the case of the chronomics uh, biomarker it's also been uh, derived pan tissue uh, so it works equally well in saliva as well as other tissue tissue sources such as blood are you saying it's equal to the standard horvath clock or did i misunderstand it's just uh, how it sounded what you said but i don't know if it's what you meant no so so our our biomarker doesn't need uh, any uh, transformations or, or um, data manipulations, if you like, to to have it align in saliva, um, nor in blood. Uh, so for uh, peripheral tissue types uh, that you could sample, uh, our biomarker provides more um, more even coverage, if you like, across across tissues and across uh, platforms. But types. you would agree it's better than having array input your biomarker from the array uh, biomarkers for biological age that are out there they're derived from a very small subset of sites the original models i mean so if you take 
for instance, the, the original Horvath predictor that you talked about, that's been derived from 20 odd thousand sites from, from an, initial, an initial starting point. Uh, whereas in the case of the chronomics biomarker, it's derived from millions. So it's got much more uh, a much more diverse starting point to, to derive the biomarker, even though you know the, the model itself will will bring that number uh, down to to the hundreds. It's three hundred thirty uh, or type range. So in the case of um, yeah, exactly. So in the case of the the Horvath predictor, you're talking three five three, and yeah, in the case of chronomics biomarker, you're you're not talking a too much of a dissimilar a dissimilar number either. Okay, so chronomics provide this biological age scoring. And although I've covered it on other podcasts, would you briefly cover, in your view, why we should measure biological age? Yeah, sure. So so biological age as as a phenomena is is really moving away from, from the calendar years to actually understanding uh, at an internal level how how old you are, how healthy you actually are. And in the case of epigenetic age, uh, as a, a readout for biological age, uh, it's been shown that this this measure of epi of biological age is indicative of age-related disease risk and all-cause mortality. And we've also shown um, so kind of prior to to chronomics that that these epigenetic measures of age uh, actually hold across different species. So, so we actually built one of the first, no, the first biomarker for biological age pan tissue uh, in a model organism um, and showed that essentially you could get same, as a proportion of lifespan, the same accuracy in that model system, even though the, the, uh, the lifespan of that organism was far shorter uh, than it is for a human. Um, and actually the, the different interventions that accelerate or decelerate that that biological age or epigenetic age also impact the the lifespan of that that organism. Uh, and so, in a uh, in a in a pharmaceutical context uh, and in a research context, it opens up incredible opportunities to to accelerate the advances in the aging space by enabling people to to understand using these surrogate endpoints of biological age, how likely a treatment is to, to impact the aging process over the course of somebody's lifespan, rather than having to do the study over the actual course of somebody's lifespan. And for, for any one of us as individuals, having uh, an understanding of, uh, of each of our biological aging rates provides us with information about our likelihoods for for age-related disease risks and what steps we can take to to reduce those those risks as well. Thank you. I'll give you a quick example in terms of biomarker from Chronomics. Today I logged into the the Chronomics portal to have a, a look before we we spoke and I looked at my results. And when I received the results for your interest, it said my alcohol consumption was low. Uh, which I post on social media um, with a wink because I'm very well known <laughs> for liking wine. I do have vices. I overconsume coffee by day, and I certainly like quality <laughs> wine by night. I'm very comfortable with that, and I, I tell you, uh, Slovenia has some very lovely wines. And when I logged in today, I saw that it had put me... Yeah, as in you could do with cutting down an alcohol side. So it had moved. So these results are not fixed, I presume. 
The biological age is still where it was, but the alcohol consumption had went up. Was that an error in the system, or is this being computed in the back end every time a, a user logs in? Uh, in the case of the, the alcohol uh, consumption biomarker and in the case of the uh, metabolic state biomarker, uh, we actually um, advanced the way in which we were uh, we were like uh, calculating this um, from a from a scale perspective. Uh, so prior the prior model that we were using was uh, was a classification related model. Um, to to essentially bin people into to buckets related to to alcohol content, uh, we've we've since taken that a step further to actually derive a, a regression based model that can actually provide you with a, a continuous um, view of uh, the impact that alcohol is is having on uh, on your health, and so that that would explain the the change in in the biomarker on that front. In the case of biological age, um, as uh, as you mentioned, it hasn't changed. That's because we we've always been using a, a regression based uh, approach uh, using uh, an elastic net model similar to 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 the other uh, biological aging models, including the one that I mentioned earlier that we derived in in a mouse as well. Thank you. If so, as a customer, and I I, I simply don't know this from the website, and I would love to know it. Is the once I have paid for an epigenetic test. Do I somehow get access to novel epigenetic biomarkers in the future that become available? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the really exciting things about epigenetics as opposed to genetics is that epigenetics is dynamic. It changes over time. And so we want that uh, longitudinal view of somebody's, uh, of somebody's epigenetic data to be as versatile and as useful as possible. And to do that, there needs to be some component of backward compatibility. Uh, and so as you uh, take another test and another test, and as uh, we introduce new biomarkers, as we mentioned, there are some features or, or biomarkers coming through the pipeline that, that we can't discuss on this podcast, then your your prior test would get upgraded um, to align to, to the future biomarkers coming through so that you can see the dynamics of those things changing over time, looking backwards as well as uh, as well as moving That's forwards. That's very cool. If I only paid Chronomics once, would I see any updates over time? Absolutely. Over you'd see you'd see updates to the to the test that you had. So you would you see new signatures? Uh, yeah, so you'd see the new signatures oh, arriving. Oh, that's super cool. But but obviously, but obviously we're not we're not resampling you. So those signatures will be from a time point when you provided yeah, the sample. Yeah, that that is right. And do you think there's a case where you can't go, you can't you can't take the old data and derive the new biomarker because you've learned something in your acquisition phase, or can you always think you can go back and apply the new biomarker to the old data? So the way we're looking at the the product development and you know and how we uh, how we think about these things, we think that the backwards compatibility is is crucial uh, for for our customers, and we've had a lot of feedback on that. So any anything we do from an acquisition perspective on the data side, we would do to ensure backwards compatibility uh, of new models as they're as they're made available. I appreciate that. When it comes to so epigenetics, Stan. Uh, are influenced by the environment and lifestyle choices, clearly. And when it comes to environment, more and more I become aware 
of chemical exposures, which are going on all of the time, uh, from your washing powder residue left in your clothes going transdermally uh, into your bloodstream to the likes of glyphosate. Um, so do you think, do you have plans for epigenetic biomarkers for pollution uh, or chemical exposures? Because uh, trust me, from the functional medicine point of view, I have came to appreciate more and more that chemical exposures in our day-to-day living play a significant role in our long-term health. Absolutely. I mean, on the uh, on the pollution side, when we talk about our uh, our smoke exposure biomarker, that actually is also capturing a component of uh, of pollution as well uh, in an, in an air pollution context. But but talking about some of the other more chemical or, or substance-related things uh, that you've just mentioned there, you know, absolutely, these are these are active areas of of interest uh, alongside alongside also uh, deriving information about um, pharmaceutical products as well. So one thing that we're seeing happening in the market that, that we're also super interested in is, is around the fact that people more and more now are taking pharmaceutical agents or, or drugs, not uh, in an acute way, as used to be the case, but actually more as a, as a, chronic, a chronic dose of something. Uh, so I guess classic examples being uh, being people taking statins or other other products of that nature, and what we're really interested in is also understanding the the epigenetic footprint of those things. Uh, so we've seen anecdotally looking at epigenetic profiles, people that have been on products that are known to to rejuvenate, actually seeing decelerated or younger epigenetic ages, which is which is super exciting and we're pursuing. But we're also really interested in in people that are in understanding the impact that long term. Uh, pharmaceutical use is having on on people's risks for for subsequent chronic diseases later on, um, because there's a there's a component of the the risk reward that people aren't weighing up um, over the course of their whole lifespan just because they don't have that information available, uh, and that's where we think epigenetics is another super powerful tool for for supporting people in a prevention. The context. more we talk, the more I'm getting excited. So now I'm beginning to think of an intervention marketplace, if I can call it that. So first of all, let's say people are on statins, you know, a a long-term drug. Do you think you'll get to the stage where you can actually say, look, these statins are, we see a signature. We've came to learn that these statins are having an adverse effect on, on areas of your health. Yeah, and this will be this will be at a personalized level. So there'll be some people where the risk reward is worth taking and others where it isn't. And and you'll be able to see the the signatures for different potential future disease states or risk factors for disease way ahead of time to be able to say to somebody, hey, okay, let's let's really think about the the pros and cons, you know, with with your doctor or or whoever it may be, um, to ensure that that you're taking the the best steps you as an individual can can take to to stay to stay as healthy as, as possible for as long as possible, and and as you mentioned with um, you know one one concept that you mentioned there, Lee, that we're you know really excited about as well is around um, providing people with a whole a whole host of interventions in a way that um, that they can personalize them to themselves, and we can almost provide uh, an understanding of the impact 
both positive and negative that various things are having on uh, on distinct individuals uh, to support people with areas of health that were previously um, not measured. Uh, and so people were flying blind as to whether things were actually um, having a positive impact or a negative impact on their health. Yeah, it's this intervention marketplace is, is most exciting from a sort of business perspective. Yeah. It's yeah, I suddenly light up with it. So you've got the sort of like harm your health side, say potentially statins, and you had no visibility. And then we can question how you play that. You know, does does a person come to test at genomics, and then you see, hey, statins are maybe not the best for you, or do you play it where the doctor looks at a past epigenetic history and says, well, somehow this might not be good for you? But what about when the more positive uh, intervention, like you could see the taking nicotinamide riboside, for example, is having a positive effect on your epigenome? Yeah, absolutely. On the on the positive side, you know, we we would completely agree with you in that uh, the ability to serve, uh, if you like, an intervention to to have an intervention marketplace, but to serve it in a way that's that's personalized to a person from their molecular data or from their biological data, so that you're serving people interventions that are going to have the biggest impact for them at the doses that make sense for them and also the ability to to then turn off interventions if they're having any deleterious in, um, impact on somebody's health uh, more than they'd they'd bargain for if you like yeah this is this is absolutely the way the way things are going and, and you mentioned with with some of the anti-aging therapies that people are working on and and these are things that we are uh, integrating and introducing at the moment yeah, because you can act as a bridge to sell it yourselves also these interventions doses therapeutics or you can offer to validate it for third parties or and or the individual and the longevity um industry will be a a trillion dollar plus industry in 10 years and people don't want to be spending uh endless amounts of money on anti-aging agents because once they proliferate in the marketplace you cannot buy everything and you cannot take every therapeutic etc so you have to make decisions and it's very hard to make decisions it's extremely hard to make decisions it's actually what i've been spending some years looking at and I'm, i'm still grappling with because how do you decide what's the best spend of your dollar for uh to protect your health to upgrade your health it, this seems a perfect uh, or a perfect um, direction to be taken in parallel with the rise of this longevity marketplace. Absolutely, and and ultimately, making decisions is goes from being hard to impossible when you don't have um, and the right decisions uh, when you don't have uh, molecular data about your own health and an understanding of how that intervention is likely to impact your specific situation um so so for sure you know we have uh, an opportunity here to provide that decision support through somebody through helping somebody with their own uh, epigenome it's great i hear you're i you come across to me as more of a science company at the moment but it's very clear the commercial opportunities it isn't what i see today on chronomics.com although that's your first public uh, foray i guess but i you know it's clear we're hearing something much larger would you agree with that i've never saw or heard you say anywhere this future vision but 
you clearly have a much larger future vision and just a little bit of uh, preventative health advice. Our, our vision as a company is to to make the unseen actionable, and that is providing uh, people with access to molecular level biological data on themselves so that they can make uh, informed decision and take action. And we don't see ourselves uh, as, as a company that's going to provide those actions. Uh, as you say, we are at our core, we are scientists and, and that is that is our kind of foundation. But what we do see we can we can support with is providing, as you mentioned, validation around interventions and also the personalization of interventions from uh, from this molecular data. And and that is definitely um, definitely the direction that that things are moving and, and the space is moving and it's it's what people want. Tom, if you could see me now, I'm smiling away. That very question you answered it like as a scientist instead of a salesperson. <laughs> you, you need a bit of Trump, you know, best in the world, the biggest, the largest, first time in history. <laughs> this is going to be Or was huge. that the, the stereotypical British sort of under um, understatement? <laughs> yeah, maybe it's maybe it's the the British politeness coming through. <laughs> I see I'm running out of time with you here, and I just got a few more questions. I must fit in, say, three more questions, and I might be jumping off a tangent here. And please help me out. Folate. What's the connection between folate intake and uh, epigenetics or uh, methylation? Um, so folate and, and methylation have a, a relatively direct link uh, in that. Uh, folate is a is a key constituent chemical in in the production of uh, the cofactor for the enzymes that adds methylation to DNA, um, and that cofactor is called S-adenosylmethionine, and it's that cofactor that in in the enzyme in DNA methyltransferases the enzymes that add methylation to DNA um, that actually stores that methyl group to transfer it to DNA. And, and folate is a, is a key constituent in that. Um, and this is actually one of the reasons why, um, why during pregnancy, mother, um, kind of, uh, yeah, pregnant mothers are, are often asked to, um, to take uh, folate-related folate supplements to ensure there is no folate deficiency, to ensure that to ensure that um, the the embryo that's that's developing is is getting properly methylated, uh, and actually there's a there's a some evidence now coming out um, to suggest that uh, actually one of the the routes through which um, fetal alcohol syndrome occurs. Uh, so this is a, a condition um, due to uh, a mother. Uh, when a mother continues to to drink uh, alcoholic uh, substances during during pregnancy um, and is specifically heightened at specific moments within uh, within pregnancy, um, yeah, there's actually, there's now links being drawn to um, through uh, this sort of folate pathway and uh, the methylation of of DNA, which are uh, which is super interesting as well. And in the last with the last guest I had, which was Jeff, um, the CEO of um, QBio. And the reason, by the way, I wanted you on next is I see overlap or I see you as very complementary and ways I would love to elaborate on, but I won't. And I'm, I have a suspicion you see the, the complementary nature of vision. But w when talking with him, I mentioned uh, the aging information theory of the 
information theory of aging. So do you agree that epigenetic instability or corruption uh, goes hand in hand with aging? And if so, do you think you can play a role in future interventions to restore the epigenome back to an earlier state? I mean, to an, to an extent, uh, trying to, to tease apart and understand the epigenetic uh, mechanism through which aging has occurred, it was is occurring. It um, was uh, was very intertwined to to my PhD thesis. Um, yeah, I I I completely concur with um, with the view that um, there is an epigenetic maintenance system. Uh, and that this is getting, um, this is tending towards uh, increased entropy with age. Uh, so, so what you see at an epigenetic level, at a, at a very um, rudimentary level, uh, what you see is that p- positions in the genome that, that had lots of methylation, so were highly methylated, uh, tend to tend to lose methylation with age, and people uh, positions that are lowly methylated tend to gain methylation in age. So they're tending towards um, maximal entropy, uh, if you like. There's also a, an interesting, an interesting uh, number of interesting phenomena here. In that, there is the ability that our bodies have, or the species has, to to be immortal. So, if you look at uh, if you look at each generation, each generation essentially has a reset. Um, that enables uh, humans as a species to not just wear out and age as a uh, as a species, but actually that to be constrained to to individuals or or to um, to the soma. So that that I always find is a is a super interesting phenomena in that um, when when you take a, a sperm and an egg that that also have epigenetic age and you combine them. You you get an, an epigenetic reset that then allows that that newly formed um, organism to to essentially start start from zero. But, again. but the tags are added on; they get re-tagged. Yeah, exactly. So during exactly so during um, the early st- earlier stages of development, you have a process of a wave of of demethylation where pretty much most methylation in the cells gets wiped out. Um, and then that methylation um, gets put back, uh, and as that embryo starts to differentiate, you get different cell types, etc. And those those gametes, um, which are referred to as primordial germ cells at this stage, are set aside at at that early point, um, and they will then form the gametes, the sperms, and the eggs that will fuel that next generation. So there's some really interesting biology. Um, intertwined in that kind of development aging axes um, that basically shows that we do have built into the process of us existing the ability to to be immortal. Um, And there are clear uh, epigenetic phenomena occurring um, during the reset of that. Uh, And this has been backed up by studies that us and others have done around reprogramming experiments. So taking cells um, skin cells or, or other types of cell from from an adult and reprogramming them, so taking them all the way back to induced pluripotent stem cells, which are analogous to embryonic stem cells, uh, and then differentiating them again and seeing that you've completely erased 
completely erased age. So there clearly is something about uh, our ability to to re- retain that immortality across the the human uh, human existence um, that is that is separated from uh, from our current our current uh, existence as a as any given soma um, that I find super fascinating, uh, and I think there will be a ton of uh, a ton of interesting. Uh, therapeutic and and other sorts of development in that space uh, to take to make use of that system to make use of that system to to provide anti aging therapies and longevity therapies uh, to to support people uh, in the very near future. Another uh, you said it in another <laughs> understated fashion on the immortality front. I appreciate that. I'll really try and wrap up for you soon. Just to clarify the epigenome. But there is a, um, a transgenerational element to it, you know, the classic Dutch uh, winter. Yeah, so so on the um, on the component of, of epigenetics across generations, um, there's there's definitely a number of phenomena, um, a number of phenomena epigenetically whereby. Um, the experiences of the environment and lifestyle of one individual can impact future generations. And and there's a there's a number of different ways in which that can happen. Uh, some of which are um, very well uh, understood and, and characterized um, in a in a research context. Others of which um, we're still not entirely sure. Um, and and you've just just mentioned one then there that we're um, you know more sure about, which is the 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 in utero effect. So this is basically that you essentially through in utero mechanisms have the ability um, for a mother's experience to be passed down two generations because if the mother is is uh, pregnant with um, with with a child, say with a daughter, um, then the uh, the gametes that will uh, develop and go on to become the granddaughter are already present, and so you can have an effect, an epigenetic effect that lasts um, lasts two generations due to an in utero effect that the mother feels from the environment. Uh, and as you say, that could be uh, dietary related um, or or other sorts of effect. Where uh, where the evidence is is less clear, and the the jury is is still out in the context of of humans. Uh, it has been demonstrated in other species. Is around uh, transgenerational uh, transgenerational inheritance, and this is essentially where um, where the effect falls outside of that uh, uterine transfer, um, and and there's a whole host of uh, Interesting hypotheses around why um, why it could exist or or why it could not exist, um, and the likelihood of it existing varies from species to species, and and that's kind of aligned with with the evidence that's available. Um, but yeah, the truth of the matter is that the the jury is still out on on the extent to which um, there is any transgenerational inheritance uh, in humans of, of that I nature. appreciate uh, someone with your expertise informing me that because with the materials I've read, it's been debated backwards and forwards and I didn't know if there was a settled position or it was my misunderstanding. And it reminds me just briefly of epigenetic memory. 
Could you introduce the just the notion of epigenetic memory and why that might, might be useful, particularly useful as a health biomarker? Yeah, sure. So, um, so when people talk about uh, epigenetic memory, um, it it can be used in in a, a number of different guises. Uh, so, epigenetic epigenetics um, at its at its purest form is is the ability for for a cell to divide and to maintain its epigenetic profile. So, uh, so if you take DNA methylation as a kind of archetypal epigenetic modification, um, and you have um, two copies of DNA, one from your mom, one from your dad, but each one of those copies of DNA has two strands. And on each strand, you can have methylation. And when a cell divides, those strands get split and they get copied and they end up in uh, in different cells. And each time a new copy of DNA gets made, DNA methylation needs to get added on it um, to make sure that that DNA methylation in the next round of division is still is still present. Or else you'd have widespread uh, DNA demethylation, something that occurs um, during development. And that's actually one of the mechanisms by which demethylation occurs during during early development. And so that is known as a a memory phenomena, um, because because essentially the the new cells are remembering their their epigenetic state. the The other context in which epigenetic memory is used is around um, differentiated cell types and the fact that in the majority of cases, your skin cells uh, know that they're a skin cell and they and they sort of stay being. A skin cell. They don't randomly change into uh, a cardiomyocyte yeah. or, a, or a heart not. cell. Um, hopefully not. Uh, although, obviously, that's that's not always the case. And there are certain instances, um, particularly around uh, types of cancer, etc., where uh, the the cell type that's being played out in a given cell, uh, if you like, the program that's being run gets gets changed uh, in a way that's deleterious for the for the organism as a whole. Uh, and their epigenetic memory has failed to lock in a cell fate. Um, and, and the way that's, uh, I guess, thought of uh, traditionally in an epigenetic context is, a, um, is from uh, a scientist uh, from back, um, back in the, the 19th century called Conrad Waddington, as essentially every cell starts at the top of a mountain. And there's different ways that cell, so an embryonic stem cell, and there's different routes that that cell can flow down the mountain. Uh, and depending on which epigenetic marks get added to that cell as it heads down the mountain will will define what that cell fate of the cell is at the bottom of the the mountain. And it's very hard to go up the mountain. And when we do IPS reprogramming, what we're essentially doing is forcing a cell, pushing the cell back up the top of the mountain um, where it doesn't know which cell fate it is um, so that we can roll it back down the mountain to become a different cell fate. Um, and and so under normal contexts, you want those cell fates to be fixed. But under certain contexts, uh, cancer being one, that those cell fates can be can be modified and, and can transition. I appreciate that. The only topic I would have loved to have mentioned uh, that I didn't is nutrition and the epigenome, because I have a strong suspicion you if you see people on a highly processed food diet, I think you're going to see epigenetic signatures. Yeah, I mean diet diet is a yeah, is a is a super super important part of of our health and and you see that even if you take something like 
like biological age measured using epigenetics, some of the key key areas in which you can improve or decelerate your your biological age or, or slow it down relative to to your actual age are through dietary uh, dietary intervention. So absolutely, diet plays plays a huge part in. Uh, in epigenetics, and, and I, you know, we kind of mentioned that just with one example uh, in the case of folate. Um, but there's a whole a whole host of other components to diet that that feed into to epigenetic phenomena. Um, I guess one one really interesting one is around whether cells are undergoing uh, oxidative. Um, so kind of beta oxidation, so oxidative metabolism versus uh, glycolysis um, or, or sugar-based metabolism. Um, and those two processes, um, amongst other metabolic processes happening in, happening in cells, result in different levels of different cofactors that feed again into that methylation process that happens um, and affects um, how your, your epigenome is um is developing and is being maintained, uh, and so so diet for sure plays plays a huge role in uh, in the profile uh, of somebody's epigenome. Okay, so I'll finish off. <laughs> we've we've shot over the the allotted time, and I don't want to be rude to you, uh, Tom. Is 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 chronomics uh, just UK only at the moment? No, so Chronomics, uh, we sell we sell our products globally. Uh, we predominantly sell now through partners and uh, and distributors. Um, we so we're always we're always looking for uh, for for new and exciting uh, partners that we can work with and that have, as you mentioned, um, interventions that that they want to benchmark as well. So, yeah, we 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 sell globally. So that brings me on to the question: Is I, when I went to the website today, I didn't appear that I could order any more direct to consumer. Yeah, so so if you are in the US uh, now or or anywhere globally, actually, we we currently are other than for existing customers, we currently only sell through uh, partners and, and channel distributors for the time being. Uh, not saying that that's that's going to be forever. And depending on the the geography or the partner or distributor that you're purchasing through, uh, the pricing will be reflected in that local in that local currency. Okay, so for now, anybody wishing to purchase an epigenetic test needs to go to chronomics.com, fill out the form, which sends you a message, and then you get back in touch with them to tell them where in their geography where to go get that test. Absolutely, if you get. Get in touch with us through uh, through the chat on the website, uh, and if you don't don't already have a partner or distributor, we can we can put you in touch with one and and ensure that you can get access to uh, to your epigenetic health information. And do you still do? I didn't see uh, an offering for whole genome sequencing, which you used to have. Do you still do WGS? Yeah, so we we still do uh, WGS, and we work um, with a number of partners. We sell, sorry, to a number of partners our, our whole genome sequencing product as standard. Uh, other partners, um, they are sold as separate units. So you can either um, purchase your your epigenetics test or having purchased your epigenetics test, you can purchase your whole genome test. And also as an existing customer, you can purchase your, uh, your whole genome or, or a genomics-related product uh, within, within your user account. 
So I'd ordered both epigenetic and a whole genome sequence. And so to be clear, when I log into the Chronomics portal, I actually see both side by side. There's no major distinction. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same interface used to investigate my epigenetics and my whole genome sequence. Absolutely. Absolutely. On the, on the back end, we process that raw data in obviously distinct for the different data types, but in the same same framework, and that is fed back to you uh, through the same user dashboard. And on the whole genome side, you you have the functionality, should you wish, to to search across your your whole genome as so well. My plan, and I'd got in contact with you a couple of weeks ago, is to redo the test I did last year, as in do you know an annual epigenetic test. And so I'm glad we spoke. And when, once I heard Jeff. I knew I really wanted you to come on, and so I'm glad we're, you you agreed to come on. I'm very happy you were very gracious with your time and knowledge, so I greatly appreciate that, Tom. Pleasure, Lee. Pleasure. And I'd like to thank you again, and uh, take care, and I do hope you'll be back, because that was only a tenth of what I felt we should talk about. Absolutely. And yeah, would love would love to come back on as well, um, especially after you've done uh, done your second test. I think that'd be uh, fantastic to come back on the show. Thank you very much, Tom. Cheers, Lee. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.com.